Welcome to Sacred Realms. It's a great day in Hyrule, y'all. Welcome to Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast. I'm your host, Lyndon Willoughby. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Matt Willoughby. And Matt, let me tell you what, we're having kind of a Sacred Realms Song of Storms edition tonight. I I absolutely agree. I'm actually making a Twitter post right now with that exact (laughs) uh, caption. It's a Song of Storms edition of Sacred Realms. It is uh, beautiful outside, uh, minus the monsoon that happened about 20 minutes ago, which delayed our start time a little bit. But uh, the after effects of said monsoon are a beautiful, slightly breezy 60 degree evening here in North Texas that, uh, man, I could not imagine or script a more pleasant evening for a podcast recording. Some, uh, some crazy kid got into the windmill and played his ocarina and things just went wild for a minute. Don't know what that's about. Uh, regardless, the, uh, the monsoon that, uh, required us to delay the start of this episode by about 20 minutes has now mostly subsided and, uh, uh, now it's just a, a nice, pleasant drizzle coming down out there. It's uh, it's absolutely beautiful. Matt and I are uh, we, we set up a card table under our back patio awning and uh, could not be enjoying this weather more. So yeah, definitely not going to complain too much. Of course we do. Uh, of course we do. Oh, an apology to our guest of the evening, the one, the only Mister Zelda Universe, Cody Davies of Zelda Universe. Cody, how you doing? Crikey, mates! It's me, your favorite Australian here on the podcast again. You, you are indeed our favorite Australian, and uh, yeah, I, I think uh, think we can we can say that you you hold a you hold a very special place in the down under part of our hearts. <laughs> definitely, uh, definitely the Would down you say under that part. I'm the best Australian that's ever been on your podcast. I think you solidly hold that number one spot. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> yep. It's yours. You can have it. Where where should we send the trophy? Um, you can send it to Australia. I don't know who I am. <laughs> you just just send it to <laughs> to Australia attention Cody Davies and they they'll get it to the right place. <laughs> sounds good. That sounds like a responsible use of $30 worth of postage. Um <laughs> yeah. Look there there is some there are some people where you don't need to list their address. Um, and the post office understands where it's going. Like if you just put, you know, Obama or what? It, well, or Biden or whatever, you know, on on the letter, and then didn't specify where it's going, the post office would still understand to take it to the White they'll, House. They'll definitely you know? do that. Absolutely. I like to be- I like to believe that the post office is not in the habit of sending otherwise unmarked envelopes simply labeled Obama <laughs> to Barack Obama's home. <laughs> One would hope that they have a little more uh, <laughs> common sense than that. No kidding. Cody, Cody. But yeah, it's the same in Australia. Okay. For me. Good. I'm the Obama of Australia. Oh, wow. That is definitely going on the caption. That's our quote of the week. That is our quote. It's going, it, that better be in the uh, episode capsule. We're four minutes in, and I don't know how we could possibly top that. <laughs> I'm the Obama of Australia. Cody Cody provides. Davies, ladies and gentlemen. Always provides. Cody, uh, how you doing? Of, of course, this is the first time we're talking to you in the back half of season six, but uh, um, 
yeah, you know, we, we we chatted a little bit on the uh, on the front half where we were discussing the the game previous to the one that we're playing now. And um, I know uh, things are probably certainly getting a little busier for you, aren't you? You're approaching a fairly substantial moment in your life at the moment, I believe. Yeah, well, I am I am, in fact, running for election. So the, you know, the Obama comparison is, uh, you know, more apt than, than usual, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, it's a uh, look. I'm not not going to get into anything about the actual politics of Obama, but you know, I would like to win election. That would be nice. Like we, we we would vote for yeah. you if we could, but I don't think they have a uh, absentee voting in Australia for non-Australian citizens. Yeah, I don't think Matt and I are guessing. capable of writing in a vote for you, unfortunately. But we could send yeah, it to well, the Australian look, post office and just see what happens. Yeah. Right. Yeah, just send us to the Australian post office and say a vote for Cody Davis, and they'll know, you know, they'll know where that goes. Surface level observation that seems like it would be a fairly substantial flaw in the electoral process of Australia, but we're not here to judge. Um, obviously, we wish you the best uh, in your in your endeavor. Um, that sounds like something that requires a fairly substantial amount of time, investment, and energy. Um, and we also consider you to be a very level headed and intelligent person. So that's like seventy five percent of the qualifications required to hold political office. I think I, I would hope so. That yeah. that is a and minimum. I, I would say seventy five percent of the people holding political office don't meet that criteria. So. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm just I'm just running at a city council level, to be fair, not for not for prime minister of Australia or anything like that. Um, Maybe one day. Yeah, it's a town of about 25,000 people and I'm going to be hopefully reelected because I've already already was elected four years ago. You're not up to be the uh, new chancellor of the exchequer in Australia. No, well. We don't have one of those. Britain does, but I wouldn't want to be over there. Right now. <laughs> no, you would. No, I don't Their think you would. Their politics are out of control. So <laughs> they're having they're having a they're having a month. No doubt about that. I think you would have a pretty easy way uh, or a pretty straight yeah, line. Having a month of three prime ministers is what I was about have. to say. You'd have a pretty straight line to that prime minister seat at this point. They're looking for any qualified candidate to take that over. <laughs> oh, I'm sure if I showed up at the airport, they would strong arm me into becoming the prime minister. They would. <laughs> Yeah. They would arrest me at the airport and say, "Sorry, but we need a sacrifice." Yeah, how, do, how does how does Downing Street sound to you, Cody? Well, they do have a cat. Ooh, well, well that, that's a positive. It's that's not definitely nothing. in the that W is, column. Not nothing. Of course, uh, when you're not busy running for political office, you are uh, doing what you have always done in your capacity as uh, Mr. Zelda Universe, just kind of keeping things running over on that end of things. And uh, you know, I feel like. In some ways, Sacred Realms, obviously an honorary um, participant in the Zelda Universe family as we're hosted on the YouTube over there. Um, I feel like our podcast, though, has sort of become a a rotating cast of uh, ZU current participants and alums. So, uh, you know, that's definitely something that we're (laughs) we're very proud of and I I think has uh, led to some really good uh, really good content, generally speaking, as of late. Um, I, I think we've got some pretty some pretty interesting stuff to talk about this week, Cody. What do you think? Oh no, there's uh, there's plenty of interesting stuff to talk about. This is definitely one of the more interesting games in the Zelda series. So we asked Josh, uh, of course, Mister Zelda Two himself, and we asked Max as well last week. And so now I'll ask you, what is your experience with Zelda 2? What are you kind of bringing into into this game? 
So I didn't complete it for the first time until the Switch. Um, I've completed it a couple times recently, um, you know, going along with the podcast and everything. Um, but yeah, I've, I tried it before all the save states and everything. And I said, absolutely not. I think that's and fair. So, you know, this is, and to me, it's something that I don't necessarily consider it a failure of the game. Um, cause I do understand the context that, NES games are notoriously difficult and notoriously unfair. You know, there's the angry video game nerd is someone who created an entire career on the fact that it's frustrating to play NES games, you know, because that's just, that's how video games were made. They said, all right, well, it's not on an arcade anymore how are we going to justify someone spending, you know, $50 or whatever on this? Uh, and the answer was make it seem like it's a longer game by making it more difficult. And that is the game philosophy of a lot of games on the NES. And I just wasn't around at that time. Um, you know, cause I, I've met people with similar views to the Nintendo 64 games. Um, who've come back from a later point and they say, this is frustrating. The camera doesn't do what I want it to do. You know, aiming this, you know, slingshot or whatever is a nightmare. Um, you know, I can't deal with this. And I go, oh, well, I grew up with that, so that's fine. Well, and, and to um, that point, I mean, it's so funny because to Matt and I, that that was always just second nature. I mean, we grew up with Star Fox and GoldenEye and Ocarina of Time. And, you know, we were just kind of used to doing all of these things with one joystick and a, a weird layout, you know. So um, but I, I definitely can see where somebody who hopped on board in maybe the GameCube era would find, you know, the N64 Zelda games to be hopefully not equivalently frustrating to what we're going through right now, but at least like comparable. Yeah, I mean, there's just points that, that people who started with the NES will just take as fact about how the controls work and all that kind of thing. It's embedded into them. And it's the same with the Nintendo 64. Um, you know, if you go back and play, because I took a while, because I've been playing the Nintendo 64 games as they come out on the Switch. And some of those games, you know, even I took a couple hours or whatever to be like, all right, here's how the camera works. I'm just going to have to deal with it in a way that back when I was eight, it w that wasn't a problem because it was like, wow, look at this experimental new technology. Um, so yeah. So, so Zelda two for me, it is, I do it. I do have it at the bottom of my list of Zelda games. I'm not as wild as Josh who has it like fifth or whatever. Um, but I do think it's, I, my opinion of it has improved over time. Um, I do think it's more interesting and I don't just mean that in a, you know, quote unquote interesting, you know, kind of way. like, I think legitimately as a Zelda game, it's interesting in a lot of ways. Um, and there are some things it does really well, but it's just so... 
up and down, the sort of spikes are so massive between its highs and its lows that it's just a lot less consistent than any other Zelda game, I think. Yeah. And I think uh, you're actually coming on on an interesting episode. We'll talk more about this later. But I think Matt and I are getting to a point where um, – I don't know. We're 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 living in a little bit of familiarity with this game now, and that is is certainly coloring our opinions of the things that we played this week. But we'll we'll talk about that more specifically later. Um, I am curious, just because you, you know you're the third person to come on this season to directly compare this game to an arcade style of video games, and I think that's <laughs> completely apt. We've mentioned that several times. I still just can't quite get around the fact that like. That was not true for the game immediately preceding this one. You know, it's it's just so it's so odd to me uh, that that continues to be my biggest thing as we go throughout this game is like, yes, it does a lot of things that I find frustrating. Yes, I understand why it does those things because of the era in which it was made. However, the game that came out a year before this one, you know, like I'm not having to make any such qualifications about for the most part. So I, I'm kind of curious where you're mm-hmm. at with that. Well, I think they're different. They're from different areas of game design. Like Zelda 1 is not a continuation of an arcade type of game. Zelda 1's the continuation of like text adventures on early computers. You know, it's a it's a it's a different type of thing. There's some combat, but the combat is not the main thing. Whereas Zelda 2 is a combat combat gauntlet kind of game, which is an arcade style game. You know, and and that's why I think the comparisons work so directly is that understanding the live system and the difficulty and everything really makes a lot of sense when you consider it in the game design philosophy of the kind of combat gauntlet games that came before it, where, I mean, it was obvious that you would die a lot because if you just sat there and didn't die, the arcade makers would go out of business. Someone would just spend their, you know, 25 cents as they do in America and put it into the machine. And uh, and then they'd be there for four hours playing on the same coin and then they'd go and the, the machine would make like a dollar over the course of the day. Um, you know, it's not a not a viable business model. And so I think, the game design philosophy of this kind of game is a different has a different history than the game design philosophy of Zelda 1. Well, let me just say that if there was a coin receptacle as- attached to my Nintendo Switch and it was collecting a quarter every time I hit rewind, <laughs> then somebody somebody who's not me would be getting a lot of money. Extravagantly wealthy. On- <laughs> wow on that yeah i have to say that that is the absolute truth (laughs) yeah so okay cool cool i mean and and so i guess just a last thing on that point so playing it on the switch you now have access to save states you can rewind you know at any major or minor mistake that you feel that you you want to do so at uh i mean do do you think that that is just in in the modern age of video games do you feel like that is the only the only real way to play this game now. I mean, do you, do you feel like it, it would be impossible to recommend it to somebody outside of that? Yeah. I mean, I think the, so the, the version of Zelda two without save states or anything, I think makes sense in the context of 
you have one game. Like you're an eight-year-old, you can't buy your own games. You got this game over Christmas. You have six months of eight hours a day play time to just grind away at this game, to just get better, to, you know. And that would be extremely satisfying if if that was the situation that I was in. You know, that would give it much more replay value than even something than even other Zelda games. Because the skill ceiling is so much higher. So I think that, but I think in the context of a modern day adult with access or even a child with access to, you know, Steam and Humble Bundles and all these kinds of things where you can get, you know, 50 games for a dollar, you know, that's not the situation that a lot of people are going to find themselves in. Um, So if you're just going back to play it um, as a Zelda game, I, I would always recommend save states and, and that kind of thing. Good. Glad to hear. Um, every every other guest who's come on to talk about this uh, game has said the exact same thing. And, uh, you know, I think that that's I think that that's very telling and also uh, very appropriate. Um, I'm sure there are some elitists out there who would say that we're just doing this completely the wrong way. But for the purposes of, you know, us trying to enjoy this game as much as possible and talk about it critically. Um, I think that there's, there's really no other way that we could have done it. So glad to hear that we're all on a page where that is concerned. Uh, thanks for all that back context, Cody. Uh, let's go ahead and get into the housekeeping because if there's one thing we always know about a Cody Davies episode, it's that not only will the sacred realms rundown be quite long in and of itself, but it will also gain at least five extra installments at the back of the episode. So we've really just got, oh, yeah. we got to leave a buffer for that. I mean, we, we, we want to let a Cody Davies episode be what a Cody Davies episode is going to be. So with that being said, if you didn't know, Sacred Realms is a weekly re-examination of the Legend of Zelda one little slice at a time. Sacred Realms drops every Wednesday and is available on all major podcast networks. Every week we play a new section of a Zelda game. Then we sit down here to talk and to drop our hot takes. If that sounds fun to you, please head over to Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, and be sure to leave us a review. Five-star reviews are greatly appreciated, and they have a chance to get a shout-out here on the show. If you want more Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod to get access to our Discord channel, uh, on which the last three participating members of this podcast are frequent contributors, which is great. Uh, You can get access to listener mail. You can vote on what game we play next. Just got done doing that. Going to be Wind Waker uh, after this. I think that's in in three or four four weeks from now we're going to be kicking that off so that should be an excellent time and much more including trading cards for our big goron sword tier patrons of course the breath of the wild cards are now out and everybody should have theirs um the first three cards from season six are going to be uh will have been revealed by the time this episode goes live um of course uh two of those are going to be art by yours truly i'm happy to announce here on the podcast although you might have already seen it that one of the cards is also going to be once again featuring art from a guest artist last time it was melora of history of hyrule this time none other than phil summers of hand-drawn game guides guest and friend of this podcast was more than happy to send us along some of his high resolution scans of the artwork that he did for that guide and we have taken one of our favorite pieces and made it into a trading card so you can absolutely look forward to that if you're a big goren sword patron of course one of the other benefits that we have for our patreon uh, for our patreon supporters is that master sword patrons and above get their names read 
every week here on the show. Those legendary individuals are Tiffany the Star, Daxel, Patrice, Darknuck, Brian, George, Mike, Dylan, Ali, Lennon, Kolku, Rowan, Josh, Nick, keep it going, Dante, Gep, Brittany, Davey, Haru the Mighty, Derek, Albert, Mark, Andy, Cameron, Tyler, Ben, Daniel, Nick D underscore TV, Travis, Christian, Jonathan, Hyrule Interviews, aka Max Nichols, Garrett, and Drew. These are all legendary individuals. We appreciate their support so much. Couldn't do it without you. But without further ado, let's talk about what we played. We do that every week in the Sacred Realms Rundown, which is a six-part, sometimes... Sometimes 12 to 14. eight, sometimes 15-part analysis of what we played this week and the feelings that it made us feel. Today, we are covering The Adventure of Link, Chapter 4, which brings us two more palaces. Part 1 is, as always, the plot recap usually read by Matt, this week also read by Matt. Take it away, Matt. We leave the palace in the maze and set our sights back towards the south of the eastern peninsula of Hyrule, where the sea meets the shore close to Naburu Town. With our handy new boots that allow us to walk on the water for some reason, we head out across the Great Sea towards the distant island that houses the Ocean Palace. Along the seaward path to the palace, we find a secret offshoot that leads to another heart container, further increasing our life and allowing us to tank more hits from those pesky iron knuckles. As we enter the ocean palace, the bright green of the stones evokes the salt air and seaweed of the coast and belies a palace that is as vast and sprawling as the sea itself. The dungeon is the most massive we have found yet, and houses scores and scores of challenging enemies, including new sorcerers that move in and out of reality incredibly quickly, but are vulnerable to sword damage. There are more iron knuckles, including those bastardly blue ones, but we find that our repeated encounters with these foes has made us slightly more wary to their tricks. We progress through the dungeon and find our power growing measurably, even within the palace itself. Along the way, we find the flute, which much like in our last adventure, boasts some unique powers that can assist us in uncovering secrets in the greater land of Hyrule. Taking our prize, we continue our search for the boss of this palace so that we can place the second-to-last crystal in the totem. As we head back towards the entrance, we follow a series of elevators to come back up on the far side of the entrance and find the boss chamber there. Within the chamber is a hulking behemoth with a spiked helm and a massive ball and chain. This creature bellows a monstrous and unintelligible roar as it charges forward. The spiked helm blocks our sword from damaging its head, but its unarmored body is still vulnerable to our blade, and we have to duck in and out of the range of that deadly ball and chain to do damage to this giant. After a surprisingly short fight, the beast falls and explodes in a blaze of fire, leaving us free to progress to the next room and place the crystal in the totem. Taking our last crystal, we head back across the water and set our gaze further south, where the river demon guards the bridge to the southernmost region. Using our new magical flute, we banish the demon and head to the untamed reaches of the Southlands. The mountain path towards this region is full of Lizalfos that throw rocks and spears, and we have a hell of a time even reaching the southern region. And once we do, we find it similarly full of dangerous foes in greater numbers than we have previously seen. Even the addition of another creepy look-alike doll does little to assuage the danger of this region. 
Luckily, we do find another heart container in the far eastern part of this area, and after some wandering in the forests, we also find a town called New Casuto. Here we discover a thriving and helpful people who give us a new spell called the Spell. They may be helpful, but sure lack in the creativity department. And along with this, we find another magical potion, which increases the overall amount of magic that we have available to us. Lastly, some helpful town folks tell us to go to the far end of the village and use the spell spell for a secret treasure. So we do, and we find the magical key that will unlock any door in its path. Taking our new creatively named magical power and our fun magical key, we head back through the forest to find the last palace in which to place our final crystal. We know that the final palace is in the very southern reaches of this portion of Hyrule, so we head back through the swamp and forest towards that area. As we come to the southern end of the eastern Hyrule, we see an abandoned town, which we were told is Old Kasudo, and we steer clear of it as we were told it is full of ghosts. On the outskirts of the ghost town, we do not find any sign of a palace, but we do see three large rocks in an obviously man-made pattern. We explore around the area, interacting with each of the rocks until we remember the usefulness of the flute in our last journey to unlock secrets that can lead to dungeons. With this in mind, we begin playing the flute all around the stones, until at last the palace appears once we played the flute standing in the very middle of the three stones. We head into the Hidden Palace to begin this final trial to unlock the Valley of Death. This dungeon is similarly vast and expansive like the Ocean Palace before it, but it has many unique pathways and means of traversal. We have to use all of our magical abilities to progress in the dungeon, both for combat and for exploration. The spell spell makes for a good companion here as we can turn enemies into blue blobs with it, even those pesky blue iron knuckles. The fairy spell becomes a commonly used means of traveling in rooms, for some of them have hidden holes in the ground that drop you to other floors, and there is a room that is full of lava, which can't be crossed normally, and finally a chasm that drops us all the way to the bottom of the palace. In this central chasm, we see that there's a pathway that we're sure leads to the boss, but since we missed it, we have to climb back to the top and try again. Along the way, we make liberal use of our combat spells and even fight the mounted Blue Iron Knuckle again, twice. This dungeon is full of XP bags and enemies, and we even find a cross that will allow us to see previously invisible enemies. We make our way back to the central chasm and drop down, this time using the fairy spell to fly to the pathway leading to the boss chamber. And inside this boss chamber, we find multiple pits of lava, and out of one of those pits bursts a huge serpentine dragon. Unlike any of the dragons we fought in our last journey, this dragon ducks in and out of the lava pits to attack from random angles, and spits streams of hugely damaging fire. We have to use our jump spell, up thrust, and well-timed slashes to damage the beast's head as we attempt to avoid his fiery breath, and also jump to the closest platform while avoiding falling to our death. After a great display of athletic ability and precision sword work, the dragon explodes and clears the way to the final totem. As we place the crystal in the totem, we know that we have now accomplished the first part of the king's challenge, and the way to the great palace in the Valley of Death will be open to us. Knowing that possibly the greatest challenge yet lies ahead, we leave the hidden palace to go claim the Triforce of Courage and save the slumbering princess.
Well done, as always, Matt. Excellent plot recap. That brings us to part two, which is our takes, where we talk about this section of the game and how it made us feel. I'm going to go ahead and pass it along to our guest of the evening, Cody. Uh, you know, uh, no no need to be completely specific just to this section of the game if you have any general observations that you <laughs> kind of want to drop. But uh, where where are you sort of at with things as, as they stand? Uh, of course... Uh, this week we're talking about dungeon. Uh, so this week we're talking about the palace on the ocean, and then the third or the three I rock palace are the are the two. Yeah, well, so the first thing I'll bring up is that I have been playing most recently on a new game plus. So this is something that uh, if you finish the game and start on the same save file again. Um, you can have a version of Zelda 2 where you have all of your abilities, you know, the up thrust and down thrust and, you know, life and all of the spells and everything. And you've got sword 8, health 8, magic 8, but you don't have the actual heart and magic containers. So they're still, you know, the, the, the size that they were at the start of the game. So you still collect those over the course of the game, but you've got everything else. Um, and that's something that you can do by finishing the game, but it's also something you can do on the Switch by just going to the SP version of Zelda 2 on the service, and it offers that, you know, from the jump. So um, so it's so interesting because last week when we were talking to Max, he was telling us he made it about to Dungeon 3, and then he uh, he began pursuing an alternative uh, format in which to play the remainder of this game with some assistance from Google. And uh, in doing so, was able to kind of debug some of the settings and um, kind of create a a version of the gameplay experience that is maybe a little bit more comparable to how a modern side-scrolling combat game would would choose to scale things like your health, damage received, damage output against enemies, that sort of thing. What you're talking about seems like it's kind of a halfway point between just the basic version and what what Max did because obviously I'm assuming the you know the front half of this game is significantly less difficult. Uh, than it would be otherwise. But of course, um, you're not able to kind of like raise the ceiling past that. Like once you... Right. Yeah. So it's not, an, it's not a new game plus in the sense that a lot of, the, a lot of games have now where, you know, you're, le- you're level one at the start of the first version of the game, but then in the, at the start of the second version, you're level 50 and the cap's level 100 and you just keep going. Like you're sort of capped at the start of um, a Zelda 2 New Game Plus run. Like you've already got everything you're going to get aside from a bit more health and magic. Um, And so what that means is, yeah, so the, the early game is quite easy because you've got, you know, a sword with eight power or whatever and you can just one shot Pretty much everything, right? Yeah, because orange orange eye and knuckles die in one hit at eight attack power. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, it's sort of smooth sailing in a sense, but there is still difficulty and it does still continue to increase. Like blue eye and knuckles are still a threat, for example, because by the time you get to, 
you know, halfway through the game, you've remained stagnant, but the enemy difficulty has continued ramping up. Yeah. Um, and, and so instead of having an eight sword when instead of a one sword, you have an eight sword instead of a five sword or whatever. So it's like not, it is a bit, it is a bit better still. It is a bit easier still, but there's still, you know, by the time we get to the final, like I went through and completed the game because I did these last two dungeons and I was like, well, I might as well do the final dungeon. Um, and by the time I got to that point, I was essentially running at the same difficulty that you will be next week. Um, if you've been if you've been properly leveling up and not wasting those crystals and that sort of thing, you should be somewhere in the realm of heading towards eight in every category uh, by the end of this. I'm, I'm not sure where you are at. Do you know where you're at? Yeah. So I, before I got to Three Eyed Rock Cavern, I got max level all hearts, all magic. So you know, going into this the last dungeon that we'll cover today I, I was maxed out which was just really great um it, the game feels so much better at max power than it did even you know two or three levels ago mm. and I, I find that it is far more enjoyable now so a little spoiler alert for the rest of the episode but I, i'm having much more fun with it now that i feel up to the challenge of the game so i, I think it's interesting that um this is kind of a proto version of new game plus, right? Like I, th I think to use a modern version, like what you were talking about, Cody, where you start at level 50 instead of start at level one and then just keep going like in mass effect. Like one of the great things I think about new game pluses in RPGs is that uh, most of them have level scaler. So you don't end up with that just ridiculously overpowered sense of uh, breezing through the game. Uh, and, and I have, I enjoy that modern RPGs are able to do a new game plus with a little bit with the level scaler so that it's not just, you know, God mode in the first half. Um, but this sounds pretty interesting to me. I think if I were to ever play Zelda two again, I would definitely want to do it in the new game plus setting just to see how it feels through the first portion, because you know what we talked about in that third dungeon where the difficulty just spikes to an unbelievable level. I feel like it would smooth that uh curve a little bit to to make it less daunting right. so a question that yeah. i have about that though cody is one of the one of the main mechanics that's happening in this game is the collection of xp and the leveling process um mm -hmm. would you would you say that you are kind of like i guess bypassing one of the main pillars of the game design by kind of doing it this way well, I think it does change your strategy in that you don't feel the need to defeat every enemy you come across. Um, you know, sometimes you do need to defeat enemies or sometimes it's fun to defeat enemies. But, like, you, sometimes it's like, I don't need to be on the grind right now. Um, let's just jump over their heads, you know. Um, and in some ways, you know, maybe that changes the experience a little. But in other ways, it's probably also actually good training because there are rooms where you probably should have been doing that anyway. Um, like there are times when our instinct is, oh, well, there's an enemy in front of us. I got to fight him. Um, when it probably would have been a better use of your resources to just get to the exit. Um, and I think there's some sort of perspective shifts that you get from playing it through a second time. And then I started it a third time just, um, on normal difficulty to be like, well, let's see how much I've improved. 
and I was having a much easier time with, I just went through to the first, to the end of the first dungeon, you know, like, so like half an hour or whatever. Um, and, you know, just without new game plus, just in a proper new game. And I was enjoying it a lot more. And I think that's when I was, when I was starting to get the experience of, after being able to play through an entire run of it with the, you know, with the bumper bars at, you know, and the bowling at the bowling play sort of in place and then, and then being able to just, you know, say, all right, well, I've had some chance to train my skill. Let's see how I do. I was starting to enjoy it Zelda two a lot more. And so that's where I can see where it would a lot where people could consider it, you know, their favorite game or that kind of thing is, if that was my 35th attempt, you know, because I was that eight-year-old child who had three NES games and six months to kill, um, you know, I might have just poured myself into that into that experience, reveling in the fact that I continue to get better each time. Yeah, I think that, that makes sense. And it's so interesting because I am encountering an abbreviated version of that phenomenon here in the back part of the game. Um, because now that I've gotten a pretty good understanding of the leveling system and how to, how to kind of game it a little bit, you know, like the, the Mm -hmm. smartest ways in which to do that. What I'm finding is, and this was kind of, this was sort of true of last week as well. I was sort of starting to figure this out last week, but this week for sure, kind of the way that I ended up doing this was I would be going into a dungeon about halfway to my next level. And then I would make sure to be fighting every enemy I came across, or at least the ones that I knew awarded a a good haul of points to the point where I got my next level up. And then after that, the back half of the dungeon would be a much different experience because I knew there was no possibility of grinding out another full level between then and the boss. Right. And so I would end up doing more of what you're talking about, where I'm picking my engagements much more uh, strategically, you know, like enemies that I don't have to fight that I know are going like if I see a blue, a blue iron knuckle that I am able to avoid, then I just kind of do that, because even though even though I know a blue iron knuckle gives me 150 points or whatever, I'm now no longer in a space where I'm trying to hit another level before I go beat the boss and get another level for free. Right. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. honestly, you can get 150 experience points from some orange Lizalfos level grind. That's that's how I level ground all the way to max, by the way, was uh, tr- tramping around the woods outside of uh uh what is that new new koatsu town kasudo kasudo new kasudo town yeah 150 points per uh a orange lazolfos and you get what 200 for a blue uh iron knuckle like that's a little bit of point disparity uh based on difficulty in my opinion (laughs) yeah so i i guess i definitely i definitely have a taste of what you're talking about cody and i can see why that would be an intriguing way to play the game i still think that i would I think that I would miss just a little bit having the level grind completely removed as a factor in my in my gameplay experience, Um, because I I think that's been one of the parts of this game that I've actually been enjoying the most. It's been one of the like, obviously, it's one of the biggest departures uh, in terms of the Zelda series at large that I actually have found myself thinking like, oh, 
I can see a situation where this could be adapted to a more traditional Zelda game, and I would still enjoy having it. Yeah, I was going to say that this is actually the, one of the core mechanics of Zelda 2 that I would really like to see iterated on like in future games like i think it's a really phenomenal system like even if it's not leveling up base stats if it's leveling up gear to where it's no longer breakable in breath of the wild 2 or tears of the kingdom which we now have a name for i yeah, need to yeah. break myself of that habit but yeah like that is a that is a grind that i have been enjoying a lot so i i would hate to miss out on that in some ways but then thinking about the trade-off of smoothing that difficulty curve a little bit on Dungeon 3 does sound pretty appetizing. <laughs> I think a, I think a version of this that actually sounds really fun to me is, like, if, if this game came out, base version is, by default, you have the down thrust and the up thrust. You've got, yeah, like, your, your health and your magic is just what it is. It's the equivalent of level 8, right? Uh, your attack power needs to be upgraded through the XP grind. But you don't get a free level by beating a boss. Mm. I think that that actually would that kind could of, be interesting. That, that yeah. would kind of cover the distance a bit. You know, it would like it would leave that element of the level grind in there in a way that's not like, you know, by having by being like spongier, by having all that health and having access to more magic. Um, I, I think that I think that that could be a more fun way to do that like a, a hypothetical more fun way to do it but and anywho that's all pie in the sky like wouldn't it be nice but um yeah for the for the purposes of just speculating mm. yeah i mean i because i have been thinking about ways that this game could be improved because the you know the question of could you remake this and make it a viable remake without losing the losing the essence of it um I think there are some areas that are very simple solutions that I think would just raise it, raise the score for me. Just simply removing the life system and just making it so that whenever you die, you reappear in that same room. Yep. Um, for me, would raise the score of this game by like a point, you know, out of ten. Um, because I, I think fundam fundamentally that means that you're able to you're able to do what you can now that you've got the save states and everything, which is, all right, here's a blue iron knuckle. Learn to do it. You know, you can be sitting here for an hour grinding away at it and, you know, gradually you'll, you'll get, you'll get better at it. You might die a few times, but you'll be put back in the start of the room again. Um, I think for me that would significantly, you know, improve the game on its own. Um, and then, you know, just a cup a couple of other variations of just like Death Mountain is like two dungeons later, um, for example, just, you know, balancing out where the difficulty spikes are. Um, and I think you could have a quite presentable, um, still difficult uh, game that, that would be, you know, more viable for someone to play. I think that's a really great observation about like just rearranging the dungeons or the you know specifically the death mountain segment like if you just put that two levels later than it is i think you have a very different far more approachable game that doesn't lose much of its difficulty like that alone i think would have severely upped its immediate uh appeal or i guess lack uh or would have um 
dumbed down the immediate pushback that you get because it's like two levels in you're doing the hardest part of the game so that that's a i think that's a very good uh observation yeah and i you know honestly i think um yeah i i think that if if the wet blanket that is the constant threat of getting sent back to north castle was not hanging over me at all times i would be rewinding this game a lot less 50 to 75 percent less yeah than i do right now like even losing all of my experience points like that's fair right like that's that's dark soulsy that's fair um but even dark souls has uh strategically placed save points right that you can go back to and and i feel like the lack of that is really the biggest portion of man i am not letting myself get a game over because i do not want to retrack through all of that crap so um yeah yeah all, all good points let's go ahead and talk about some of the things that we pick up in this section of the game um of course the way that we're playing this we didn't actually visit a new town between maze island palace and the palace on the sea so there was no new spell to be had there uh we did visit two new towns however we visited uh new casudo town and i actually uh kind of found myself in old casudo town for a second as well not mm-hmm. that there's anything to do there at the moment um but new casudo town does give us a few interesting uh points of trivia we do collect a new spell uh what i think is the most cleverly named spell in the game which is the spell spell, spell. <laughs> it's the spell spell <laughs> <laughs> 10 out of 10 oh, best spell on the game um uh this of course uh is uh serves dual purposes one it uh it serves as a way of revealing certain secrets um once you do acquire it uh you know you can find a uh you can find a secret treasure in new casuto town once you have access to this spell. But of course, uh, when you're in a combat scenario, the use of this spell will allow most enemy, most any enemy in the game to be immediately transformed into a bot, which, uh, by the way, I know that that's what they're actually called, but I still call them choose. Yeah. I mean, they're basically choose to, to me. They're choose. Um, so yeah, that's, that's neat. Worth mentioning that, uh, if you do this in a dungeon, when you kill the enemy, if you leave the screen and come back, then the enemy that was originally there is still there. It does not clear them out uh, from the entire dungeon experience, but it is a way to uh, maybe strategically get past a troublesome blue iron knuckle if uh, if that's something that you want to do. I but, used it religiously. <laughs> yeah. Or so, liberally. Excuse yeah. me. So, so anyway. We, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, Go ahead, gonna, Cody. just going to say that the spell spell is... I think most useful to me when there's just like five enemies on screen and they're firing something at you and you're like, just go away, please. Or (laughs) if they're throwing rocks at you from a fence and you can't reach them, for example, um, that's a, that's a good example, which I think happened before you got the spell spell. Um, But for me, I had it, I had it throughout my new game plus run. So I was like, you're not going to throw rocks at me anymore. Um, and, you know, you use the spell on them. So it was a fun time. Oh, so you you start out with all the spells also on New Game Plus. Yeah. I oh, mean, some cool. of them are, are, are still a little expansive. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, but you do you do have all of the spells from the start. You have your all of your abilities from the start. Um, 
And, you know, it gives you an appreciation for some of them being able to use them in the early well, and, and to that point, yes, you kind of so I know the little the little canyon, I guess you're talking about where there's three, three of those points where the overworld just kind of randomly bounces you into a combat section. And there are Lizalfos chucking rocks at you from above a yeah, large fence area or what they are. They are Lizalfos. OK, but it, it, in fairness, uh you know, there is a situation in, w- in which you might have to, like, traverse back through that on your way to somewhere else. And so, yeah, definitely worth mentioning that the spell spell would be very useful there. Uh, that is one thing that I kind of wanted to mention this week, and I don't think we've talked about it really very much previously. But one thing that I really wish this game did better in its overworld, like in the execution of its overworld, is I wish that there was some sort of indication of when you're about to get just dumped into a mandatory combat section mm-hmm. because uh, visually it's completely indistinguishable from the rest of the path that you're walking on. And uh, this section we're talking about now, it happens three times in very short succession, right? Yeah. Where it's like, you're just walking down the road and then all of a sudden it's like, whoop, now you're in a combat zone, you know? And of course the first time you do this, you have no possible way of killing any of these guys. Uh, I guess maybe if you activated jump, the jump spell, and then did your upward thrust, maybe that would work. I, I didn't try it. I'm not sure if that's the way that you're supposed to do it or not. But regardless, uh, that happens two more times after you get out of that section. And those Lizalfos up on the top of the fence are like throwing fireballs and stuff at you. So um, definitely kind of a kind of a health drain as you get mm-hmm. down towards this section of the map. Um I don't know. I, I I just I really wish there was some sort of indicator that I was coming up on a combat section. You know, a, a cool visual indicator might have been um, what look like checkpoints or because they're basically Lizalfo's barricades that are set up here. Right. I feel like there's a pretty good way to if, if you can render bridges, you could render what looks like a fence. Right. And just put it in, in, in those three sections. Um, and I think that would be a better indicator to the player that like, hey, you're about to enter an area that could be uh, kind of hairy. So maybe you want to uh, top up your health and your magic before you run in there, um, because I did not do that. And I almost game overed uh, because I was very low on health when I went into this section and um just I trucked through the first one. I did my my back or my uh, fullback moves of trying to dodge and weave all the rocks and uh, stab the spear Lizolfos. Um And I was like, OK, well, I made it through that. That was fine. Got another one. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And then got a third one. And I was like, man, this is ridiculous. So um, and then when you get on the other side of that, until you get to new uh Costu Casudo Casudo. I should probably just pull that up and have that in front of me because I have my laptop uh, new Casudo town. Um, you have no way of really refilling health or magic outside of trying to grind some ads to get some uh, uh, some magic potion. And like, man, that was that was a rough trek through the wilderness from uh, Naburu town all the way to the next dungeon and through into the, the next town. Like it was it was pretty rough spell game for me i don't know cody i don't know if you had any difficulty with it with your uh god mode uh level eight everything and all that but um i know this was before i got fully leveled up and i was still missing a few of the i think you can get two magics and two heart containers in this southern section of eastern hyrule so um i know you don't wouldn't have those in a new game plus but um did you find that like having maxed out life and magic was was more helpful in this section yeah i mean i think there is a level of like 
the the Lazarfos throwing rocks, for example, is something that you can avoid damage just by being patient, which I don't do. Like, <laughs> don't do that well. Patience you know, is not my strong suit. <laughs> which, you know, because if you just run straight forward, then you run into all the rocks. But if you just like stop for a second after the rocks start, you know, you can be like, all right, well, you know, let's wait for the rocks. But, you know, so there is most of this stuff does have a a degree of, of, of skill and I f- felt like I was getting a bit better at that as well. But having the, the buffers of, uh, of health and everything also helped. Yeah. The, um, there was kind of a pattern to the way they throw so that if you did keep going forward, it, it, you would invariably get hit. But if you stopped or backtracked even like a little bit, then most of them would go past you. And then the, all the Lazolfos would switch direction and throw rocks the other way. And you kind of had a more clear path. So it did take a little bit of forward, stop back, forward, stop back, you know, like that kind of motion. Um, that once I got the hang of it, the third one didn't almost kill me. I, mo- I lost most of my health in the second one when I tried to just straight run through it. And that did not work at all. So, um, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. One thing that I did think was actually kind of disappointing, and it's not like we're it's not like we're hurting for combat experience in this game. I mean, that, you know, we're 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 fighting a new enemy every five seconds in Zelda 2. That being said, uh, I was disappointed by the river devil. Yeah, I was, too. I was hoping for something and like an encounter of something. Give me a mini boss here. Yeah. And instead it was play the flute and he's just poof. By, I didn't even get to see him. I want to know what he looks like, other than his little black sprite, little black spidery thing. Yeah, look, I love that sprite. It looks like me trying to draw a spider. It's um, <laughs> you know, like it, it's a very like I commissioned a six-year-old to draw a spider little sprite there that's just sitting there. Yeah, well, I, and I think it's so funny too because when you uh, when you put it in scale, when you try to like when you analyze the scale of things in this overworld against one another and you look at the size of this river devil, you know, um, it is apparently the size of a town. So I'm just, I'm just saying that's average size for a spider, right? (laughs) Sorry. We might have different perceptions on how big a spider should be. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Ours are not the size of towns here in Texas. Maybe you have a different experience. I know that you, uh, I know that you ride spiders to work every day in Australia, but for us in Texas, yeah. Um, we actually live on spiders. Our whole town is just on the back of a spider. Um, and of course, and, and of course it's the most venomous spider in the entire world, right? Oh yeah. 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 No, that only makes sense. Um, no, I, I really wish that there had been some kind of like some enemy encounter here that was different than anything we've ever, you know, kind of run across before. Like a, just an overworld boss of some kind, I think would have been pretty fun. Um, because aside from that, really the only the only obstacle you have to overcome here is trying to figure out what do I need to do to clear this thing out of the way. And by process of elimination, just pushing you know, like one or two of the buttons that you have available to you, like you will take care of it if you have the flute. You know? mm-hmm. um, so I, that, that definitely left me a little cold. Uh, I, I think that even within the, the confines of what this game does and is capable of doing, there was a better solution available here. Um, 
So that that was definitely a little disappointing. I will say that uh, so the whole process of trying to like so so seeing a town, getting there, realizing that it is not the town I want to be in. It's old Casuto town and uh, full of invisible enemies that are constantly damaging me, which was a huge pain in the ass. Um, And then trying to go find the new town uh, and then. Like doing something new here, which is realizing that apparently the hammer cuts down trees. I didn't know that's the thing it did. <laughs> yeah, which makes no sense physics wise, but okay. It's a very sharp hammer. <laughs> apparently. Yeah. yeah. Uh and then fighting New Casudo Town. You know, that was that was a that was a thing. That was a moment in this game. <laughs> yeah, it happened. I don't know. I don't know how much I can say. Yeah, I mean I think it's a I think it's a fun moment if you have the guide in front of you, which is that what I have to say about most of the things in Zelda 2 and Zelda 1 for that matter in terms of overworld exploration and stuff is the an obvious issue with these early games is that the stuff that they didn't have the ability to fit in the actual game that ended up being in supplementary material. Um, and so if you're just trying to play the game on its own, there's no indication about any of this stuff. Like, it's just a bunch of sprites that look identical to the sprites around them. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, I don't know. I mean, Matt, do you have anything specific that you want to say about this section of the game outside of the dungeons, really? Um, I hate the way that... uh, Good start. Good start to a thought. It was. I hate the way that um, the swamps make you move slower in the overworld. Like, it's just a minor inconvenience that annoys me, especially in this area where I felt like enemy spawns in the overworld were increased by like 50%. I couldn't take five steps without getting some type of enemy encounter. And I was just trying to move around to find a place where I could heal. And I, I found that to be incredibly frustrating is I'm trying to just truck my way through to where I knew the town to be because I had the, the guide in front of me and I, I literally couldn't go five steps without getting attacked and I couldn't move fast enough to avoid them. So, yeah, that was frustrating. Yeah. I think that's yeah, really my only other I- thought. Yeah. I, I think random encounters on in the overworld are another thing that I'm happy to just like get rid of, you know, in my theoretical remaster. Like I don't think they add much of value aside from making it more annoying to explore the overworld. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and a lot of them don't give good XP or take away XP or that kind of thing. There's just an inconsistency to, you know, the benefit of, of getting caught in one of those. Well, and that's the thing. Random yeah. And I agree. And that's the thing I don't even completely understand because yes, I know that on paper, this mechanic is intended as a way to help you grind those XP points and get all of your stats up to eight and, and whatnot. The thing is that I have been avoiding overworld combat encounters basically the entire time that I've been playing this game. And even with that being said, it has not been a stretch for me like so i i also was at triple eights at the end of this playthrough uh, at the end of the the uh three-eyed rock dungeon and it's not like i was really doing anything particularly grindy to make that happen um 
I, I, you know, we'll talk about this in the dungeon map, but in, in the first dungeon, I was definitely taking a lot of time and care to defeat every enemy that was in there because, um, some of the ones that are in there award substantial points, you know, but that's a dungeon, you know, at no point have I been farming field encounters to try and level stuff up. So I'm like, I'm struggling to see a version of how a, a version of this game where somebody is not getting the levels that they need just by doing dungeons and by kind of being intentional about clearing out enemies in them. I don't know. So I, I definitely agree with you, Cody, that from that perspective and also just from the fact that they're annoying as hell, uh, yeah, could definitely do without the overworld encounters. And I think at that point, the overworld becomes a much emptier feeling place. But I mean, I guess that's fine with me because the overworld is pretty much something that I'm just putting up with at this point anyway. Yeah, I mean, the overworld, I think, is the weaker point in the in the game. Um, and I think there are things that could be done to improve it. You know, talking again about the theoretical remaster that I'm, I'm – uh, you know, organizing here. Um, just getting rid of random encounters, updating the sprites so that so that areas that are meant to represent something look different from areas that aren't meant to represent something. Um, just so that the things that are in the strategy book that you're meant to buy with the game are simply in the game. Um, you know, I think some people would say, oh, you're getting rid of the mystery or whatever, but like... It's not really a mystery if there's just no indication. It's just, you know, that's just if you are very bored and just wandering around aimlessly um, territory, not sort of, oh, I've got an inkling, let's go investigate. Right, yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Yep, completely agreed. Uh, I will say one other thing about just this section of game generally outside of the dungeons is that um, there's a little bit of a puzzle, if you want to call it that, uh, in which you can acquire a piece of heart if you are intentionally trying to explore, you know, tiles that you can walk on on the ocean over by the palace on the sea. And, Mm. uh, you know, I guess in and of itself, that's a that's a neat way to make the boots useful. Right. Because outside of getting to the palace on the sea itself, um, they really don't have a a function other than that. Uh, And so that, you know, I guess that was kind of that was kind of interesting. This leads me. I mean, I I kind of have a similar complaint about hidden uh, hidden bubbles, I guess, like bubbles of uh, sorry, that's a that's a bungee term. We call a bubble a a zone that you can like be in. You just had to throw in that it's a bungee term because you work at bungee. I work at Bungie. Oh, who do you work with? Have you got any co-workers there? <laughs> well, you know, the for, the foremost Zelda historian on the internet might uh, might be over there on the team with me. Uh, oh, my wow. gosh. Love you, Max. You're a hell of a guy. Uh, anywho, so, yeah. Uh, so I, I think the little, the little tiles that you can occasionally land on that bring you to an area where you can get a bag of XP or a heart container or a magic container – I think I have the same issue with those as I do with the uh, completely um, completely hidden combat areas, right? Where it's like I, I would like I would like some visual cue of some kind that is encouraging me to explore off this direction. Um, for for XP bags, I think I feel that a little less strongly, you know. 
I, I think I'm kind of happy with those being random ish, uh, just because the like the potential gain is not quite as the like the ceiling on that is not quite as high. But like for heart containers and magic containers, um, where you're trying to give yourself a permanent stat benefit within within the context of this game, I really just wish there was like a system for uh for encouraging you to explore for those outside of just like well if you happen to if you happen to land on this random tile then cool here's a here's a magic container um and you know even zelda one i think did that a little better because you had heart containers that you could see in the overworld and you like once you got the raft you knew to head out to that island and get them or you know you uh you had the bombs and so even though there was no visual cue that a wall was bombable, it was still kind of a mechanic of that game. That's like, Hey, try to try to blow up some walls, you know, and behind some of them, there's a heart container. Um, and all of that mystery and exploration, I think is kind of lost, uh, in, in the way that this game chooses to give you those things. I totally agree outside of, um, caves. I think caves are always an exploratory option. That's fair. That's fair. Um, you can see the caves. Yeah. Caves. And then like, I think we talked about it last week, just the standalone clump of trees or, you know, things that look. Yeah. But that's happened like once. Yeah. The standalone right. clump of trees happened a time. One time. Yes. Uh, agreed. But uh, your point overall, I agree with. Cool. So there you go. Cody, are we right or are we right? <laughs> I think you are, in fact, correct. Uh, so we're not right. We're correct. There you go. All right. Um, so I think that unless anybody else has anything to, to say there, let's move on into our first dungeon, uh, Ocean Palace. Um, so, so, this, so yeah, uh, section two of the Sacred Realms rundown, the dungeon map, where we analyze this week's dungeon from mechanics to music and more. And, of course, we've got two dungeons, the uh, Palace on the Sea and the Three-Eyed Rock Palace. I think this is the segment of the show that's going to get a little more positive than what it has been before, because unless I'm very much mistaken, Matt and I both felt like we were having a better time with these uh, palaces than we have in the past. And also kind of continuing a theme, which is that the dungeons themselves are tending to be the more enjoyable part of this game overall. Would you say that's fair, Matt? I absolutely agree. Um I I found myself even though these dungeons are definitely harder than and definitely longer um, than the ones previous, I enjoyed it more. Um, even though the enemies are the same difficulty, um, I am starting to climb that skill gap a little bit. Um, I am starting to kind of realize the benefit of not just brute forcing my way through every encounter with rewind. And like really trying hard to um, learn the movement patterns and the attack patterns and adapt to those. And it made it a lot more enjoyable. Now, I will most of the time like would you, one, would you would you say we're riding the learning curve? I would say the learning curve is dragging us along by our hair, kicking and screaming. <laughs> but we're getting there. <laughs> um, so no, no lies detected. Yeah. So I will say that like. I, I would approach all of these encounters and like really go through it. And once I got it, I would rewind to the point where I had the health I started with for the most part and then like go through it again. So I almost did most of these difficult enemy encounters two or three times 
almost as like practice runs to continue getting better at this one enemy instead of just taking all the hits and then moving on and being almost dead. Um, because yeah. that was really the point that was most frustrating through the first part of the game was just constantly being in a one shot kill status um, with no lives left. So I, I really was being pretty intentional uh, about using them as practice runs. And that did make this section take a lot longer mm -hmm. than most of the other dungeons. But I think the, the benefits that were uh, gained by that uh, were definitely substantive. So, and as, as an addendum to that point, I will say that I've gotten in the habit now of intentionally game overing myself before I go into a new dungeon. So, oh, really? Yeah. So that I, so that I go into the dungeon with three lives, because I found that even though I, you have that, the, the pain in the ass factor, of having to walk all the way back like even at this point in the game you have to cross to a new continent right so like yeah that's a huge that's a huge pain but like i find that once i get to the dungeon uh it creates a much less stressful experience and i'm willing to burn a life or two as long as i arrive at the boss with with one life then i'm i'm okay so yeah uh <laughs> yeah, everything that you said, I completely agree with Matt. Definitely feeling a little bit more comfortable with this game's dungeons, their cadence of combat, um, you know, the the way in which you kind of choose to explore them. That's all sort of starting to feel pretty familiar. Cody, where where were you at with the palace on the sea? So <clears throat> I guess continuing what you were saying, the feeling of feeling more skilled um, which I think is partly because people are becoming more skilled and partly because part of the game design is in providing signifiers of enemies that you're better than now. Um, like the Iron Knuckles, they have blue Iron Knuckles now, but they don't just release blue Iron Knuckles. Like there's all three types of Iron Knuckles in within the same dungeon sometimes. Right. And so you're wandering through, you see your old nemesis, the Red Iron Knuckle, and you you defeat it and you're like, oh, I'm pretty good, huh? You know, I've been improving. And part of it is that you have been improving and part of it is that your sword level and all of that kind of thing have gone up since you last saw them. And I think we'll see this uh, more in the next in the next dungeon we're talking about with perhaps a recurring mini-boss situation where you can feel like, wow, this is, you know, I'm improving, and I think to some extent that's part of baked into the game design of the dungeons, which I found interesting. Yeah, I, I am appreciating the two-shotting red iron knuckles and the one-shotting orange iron knuckles at this point, um, as well as, you know, even two-shotting blue Stolfos um, uh, and the iron chuckers. What are they called? The rock rock knockers? Yeah, even two-shotting <laughs> those knockers. guys. Yeah, Doom Knockers. Yeah, even two shotting those guys. Great like, name. I, I think Great that's a name. that's a really good point, Cody. That the game that at this point in the game, much like at this point in the game in the Legend of Zelda, where we start getting retreads of old bosses as mini bosses to signify how much more powerful you are. I think well, that's kind of a very similar structure. And one thing I will say too is because you just mentioned a few different kinds of enemies, all of whom appear in these dungeons that we're talking about. And one thing I think this game has done a pretty good job of up until this point is actually uh, educating us 
on the patterns, like the movement patterns, the attack patterns, all those things, like educating us about how to fight these guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is actually that is that is actually a somewhat intuitive process that um, it requires it requires a certain skillful hand to be able to telegraph that right like the enemies have to have a very intentional way in which they move and they have to have a very intentional way in which they attack and all of the enemies in this game really do and once you learn to observe that and to catalog it then all of these encounters become much less of a pain than they were before and that just comes through experience right and through repetition um i think that there's a version of this game where it was designed by less skillful people where these things are like that nuance isn't there, you know? And, Mm -hmm. and this game is not that. And I I do have to give it a point in its favor uh, because that is, that is definitely, um, that is definitely something where observation is rewarded as you kind of continue through it. Yeah. And that's where you start to see the similarities to, people talking about the modern stuff like Dark Souls and that kind of thing, the sort of joy of this is a difficult enemy, but I've figured out his attack pattern. Um, and, you know, and that can be quite enjoyable. I think there's a few situations where it's like, you know, like the throwing axes guys and Death Mountain and that kind of thing that you're like, this is this is unfair. This it just seems to be randomised. I don't want to deal with this. But... There is a large degree of sort of actual pattern recognition in that in this game as well. Yeah, I, I completely agree. One of the enemies I want to talk about specifically in the Palace on the Sea is I don't know what are these guys called, Matt? They're the uh, they're not wizards, but they sorcerers. Sorcerers? Yeah, that's that's what they're called. Yes. Okay. Cool. Uh, so yeah, the sorcerers um, and these enemies I actually found were very enjoyable to fight against in this dungeon because. There might be a lot of them in a room like they they pack them in pretty close, but their their attacks, they only travel so far. They don't travel very fast. They're pretty easy to avoid in and of themselves. The thing that's difficult is actually finding a window in which to do damage against the enemy themselves because they appear and then they shoot a fireball. Then they disappear very quickly in order to actually damage them. You have to hit them at the exact right time. You know, you've got a window of like a a second and a half maybe in in which to do that. But if you can do it, then you get 200 XP per enemy. And this dungeon is full of them. And to me, that was actually a lot of fun because that that turned this dungeon into kind of an XP like like an XP bank, basically. Yeah, I found myself kind of avoiding the first room of sorcerers because I thought they were similar to Wizrobe, so I was trying to reflect the fire back at them. It didn't work. And I was like, okay, I'm not really sure what to do about these guys. And they teleport so quickly that the first room I encountered them in, I was like, I don't know that I can hurt these guys, so maybe I just have to run past them. There was a point where you were in a room with like four of them and also some of those wolf heads that were flying around that I was like, crap, I'm just going to have to kill some people. And so it was at that point that I figured out how to actually like damage them and, and get into a rhythm with them. And once I figured that out, I actually backtracked through the dungeon to go find all of the other sorcerers that I could find in order to kill them and get those 200 XP. Because once you figure out their movement patterns and how to damage them, uh, they're really not that hard. And I, I enjoyed that enemy 
Ooh, excuse me. I enjoyed that enemy type quite a lot, uh, to be 100% honest. Cody, any... Yeah, uh, I don't know if you have anything to say. Yeah, I, don't, I was going to say about sorcerers or any other enemies in particular that kind of stood out to you. Um, and- um, I mean, just speaking of this first dungeon, I mean, I guess the main thing I had to say is probably that... Um, I accidentally went straight to the boss uh, <laughs> and then had to come back to the dungeon and um, and find the item. Uh, but that's just one of the one of the fun little things about uh, about dungeons in this in this game is that you can just wander through and then you see the you see the drapes or whatever, you know, at the top of the screen, you're like, uh oh, you know boss time yeah the the boss dungeon in ocean palace is actually you can encounter it pretty early on um it's if you look at it i'm looking at a at a layout of the dungeon it's actually the very first room on your left um obviously it's blocked off when you first come down that first elevator so you have to kind of go around down and then all the way left and then up which i did on accident i walked in and i saw the curtains and i was like oh i'm not supposed to be here yet so so turned around and went back and had to explore the whole dungeon well and and that's the thing about this the both of the dungeons this week is that they're both kind of sprawling in different ways uh they both have systems of elevators that lead you um to dead end areas that may or may not have something that you want to collect um and and yeah it's definitely not a direct path that leads you to the item and then to the boss right um there's definitely some exploration that is required here and i enjoy that about it um i think this is yet another yet another example of why i think that side scrolling dungeons are a thing that i think as a concept is is somewhat fun you know i'm not i'm not at a point obviously where i'm ready to say that i think zelda should just do this as a as its uh modus operandi going forward but like i i I do enjoy having a more complex uh layout and where the dungeons are kind of concerned um because what you do have to do if your goal is to be done with the dungeon when you beat the boss yeah, you've got to explore the whole thing because if you don't do that, then you're not going to find the flute um, and then you're going to have to go back in like like Cody is saying later. Of course, in this dungeon, it's also got a fair amount of keys. Um, and so if you're not being very intentional about collecting those and exploring everywhere, then you're going to get held up at some places. So, yeah, I, I, I think that this dungeon uh, was was pretty fun. I don't know if I liked it as much as the next one that we're going to talk about, but it was an enjoyable challenge in and of itself. Um, and I think for me that was definitely helped along by the, the density of difficult, but manageable enemies. I think that that last point is really kind of the key for me. I I feel like this dungeon did overstay its welcome a little bit. I think it was too sprawling. I think there were too many long corridors and too many opportunities to find yourself up against a locked door that you then had to backtrack for five minutes to go find a room you hadn't been to yet and find a key and then find your way back to the dun to the locked door that you were at. So I I think that this dungeon did overstay its welcome a little bit for me. Not, not, uh, not overly so to where I was annoyed by it, but, um, I think if I had to give it a, a detractor point, it would be that. Um, but overall, definitely would say that I enjoyed this dungeon. Um, I think 
you know, not going to spoil too much, but I think one of the main things about the next dungeon is that there was a lot of it that you didn't really have to explore because magic key and, um, you know, the, the main loot pool for the next dungeon is mostly just experience point bags. Yeah. So let's talk about the boss in the palace on the sea. What do, do you have a name for this guy, Matt? Uh, it is, I think Guma or Mago Guma. Hold on. I mean, scroll. Goom. Yep. Guma. Guma. So Guma is a big spiky headed dude with a spike ball. And uh, this was actually a decently challenging boss fight. But I I felt like it was challenging in a pretty fair way. Uh, You know, for one thing, this dude immediately reminds me of Spiked Mace Guy in Canalette Castle in Link's Awakening. So that was kind of fun. But the way that this boss works is that he has a big spiky mace ball and he throws it on a pretty regular rhythm that's pretty fast. There's not too many gaps between it. It has quite a bit of range. Uh, If you're anywhere close to this guy, you're getting hit and it's doing massive damage. But you just got to wait for the exact moment after his attack to get in close and do a hit with your sword. And once you get that rhythm down, you're going to be able to take uh, take this boss down pretty easily. Uh, Cody, how would you feel about Guma? Um, well, I was playing in New Game Plus, so all these bosses I was like, oh, easy, GG easy. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I think the bosses in Zelda 2, I think, are interesting. Just in the comparison to Zelda 1, where the bosses were usually the least difficult part of the dungeon. Um, or maybe not the least difficult part of the dungeon, but like they were the experience that you think of them as in later Zelda games where it's like, okay, here's the action set piece. Yeah. I think it would be fair to say that they were the least difficult part of the dungeon in my personal opinion (laughs) in Zelda one. Um, sorry. I mean, cause you have, I keep going, but yeah, let me, hold on. Let me, yeah. Pull pull up your guide, pull up your guide and, and get a refresher. Uh, which one is this? Oh, it's the spy, spike helmet guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think this is an interesting one. Like it's a, you know, it's one of those ones with an attack pattern that, um, that you can learn that I didn't bother to do much with because as I said before, I was like overpowered. Um, yeah. So I just wandered in wandered into the to the spikes but i think this was one of the early examples of a zelda boss where they have a specific pattern and you can avoid damage if you learn it yeah um yeah yeah i think that for me um so the only thing that you can do because you can't block his mace even with reflect it does nothing um, so like your only thing you ha- can do here is jump to avoid the mace because crouching doesn't avoid it. So like for me, I went into this and I always enable shield, assuming I have enough magic uh, for a boss fight. And that definitely made it better. Um, but luckily, um, I used uh, Josh's uh, grind out some magic by killing blue chews uh, method before I went into this boss fight. So I actually went in with like three quarters magic and, and pretty much full health. 
And so I enabled shield and uh, also after I realized that I couldn't block his mace or anything, I actually turned on jump also. And so that was kind of my strategy was uh, jump to avoid the mace as soon as he threw it and it retracted, run in, slash him, run away. And if he happens to get hit on you, I at least had shield active, but it still took away like two full segments of health. He, he does a lot of damage. So like that was kind of how I went about this was just a hit and retreat, hit and retreat, jump over the mace when you can. Um, I did have to like use life spell once, I think. But overall, like much more of a brute force your way through it kind of boss fight than more of a mechanics based boss fight, I would say. Like a lot of the other ones, specifically the, you know, Robo Knight from last week where you have to uh, jump and downward thrust and then fight a blue iron knuckle. Like that was definitely more mechanically based, but this was kind of more brute forcey in my opinion but not in a bad way like i didn't think it was a bad boss in any way it was kind of a a good um switch up from what we've normally had from other bosses in in this game so far yeah i agree i think uh there was definitely a cadence that that was required for you to figure out and once you were able to take advantage of that i think that made it a challenging but still fun boss fight um and and really i think to to the earlier point of how not challenging bosses were in Zelda one that continues to be a highlight for me in this game. I have enjoyed some more than others, but I think uh, without exception, they're all more difficult by quite a bit (laughs) than bosses that we got in, in the first game. So, Uh, but do either of you have anything else you want to say about the palace on the sea? Nothing for me. I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. Cool. Well, let's move on to the second palace of this week, which is Three-Eyed Rock Palace. Uh, this one actually uh, requires a little bit of uh, a little bit of flute magic to get to. Uh, there are three suspicious-looking rocks down on a beach. You stand in the very center of all three of those rocks. You play the flute. You gain access to this palace. Uh, so this one, we we notably do not have the sorcerers at all that we had in the last palace. What we do have are more wizard robes. We've got some blue iron knuckles. We have iron knuckles of several colors, actually. Um, And then once again, we have kind of a sprawling layout. Uh, We've got a return of the mechanic where you have to throw yourself into a pit. uh, (laughs) And by doing so, you can get to other floors. So, Matt, where are you at with this one? Uh, yeah, so I, I have to say that I think getting to this one was another one of those kind of obnoxiously non signposted things. Um, mostly because I, you know, I figured you had to use the flute because you just got it. And I went down and found the rocks and, you know, I used a guide to know where to go, but I was trying to do as much as possible sans guide. And I played the flute on every on all four sides of each three rocks in front of the rock, uh, like in the in the position where a fourth rock might have been and then in the middle. So like <laughs> it was like 10 different things of flutes interspersed with uh, getting jumped by random uh, ad encounters that I hated. And so that was kind of annoying uh, just getting into it. But um, as far as the dungeon goes, I liked this dungeon. Um the the whole jumping into a pit thing is still weird because sometimes it's good. Most of the time it's bad. Um, like it, it's either going to kill you or get you to the next part of the dungeon you need to go to. You don't know which it is unless you have a map pulled up. Um, 
So that was interesting to me. Um, yeah, I like this dungeon, though. I think it was it was good. I would have liked to have seen the return of the sorcerers. I would have liked um, maybe a little bit more. I think if they had exchanged some of the XP bags for like red magic jars, that would have incentivized me to actually go explore yep. uh, the terrain of the whole dungeon more as it is. I, uh, about, you know, five, 10 minutes in to exploring around in the dungeon, I did pull up a map and was like, okay, here's kind of where I need to go. So I, I didn't explore a solid like quarter maybe of this dungeon because I just didn't need to, I, I didn't want the experience bags. I was like 2000 XP into a 9,000 XP level up. So there was really no way I was going to get enough XP to get a full level before hitting the boss. So I was like, yeah, I don't really feel the need to go do all these things. And um, so I think that it lacked a little bit of incentive for me to run around and do all the things that I do in most every other dungeon. Um, I will say I loved having the spell spell <laughs> throwing the spell spell on uh, every blue iron knuckle I found was just a point of vicious vindictive pleasure that I had um, and I watched them flail around on the floor as uh, chews and then stabbing them was was really fun for me. So I actually I fought most of these blue iron knuckles and I, I avoided several of them. But uh, I will say that this dungeon kind of like restored my faith in the point that I made last week, which is that blue iron knuckles are actually more fun to fight than we originally gave them credit for. It's just that when you're able to do that in a space where you can move around like that's sort of what makes the difference you know when you've got to fight them in a like a, a dark hallway or somewhere then then that's kind of a huge pain uh because you you just don't have as much room to dodge and whatnot as as you really should for that enemy um yeah i agree with you matt i similarly did not visit every room of this dungeon and and i have for the past few just because again same as you i knew that even if i went and got every single xp bag that was in, like off in a room somewhere, it would still not get me a whole nother level, you know? Yeah. Like, nothing but beating the boss was going to get me up to that next level. Um, and I did, I did get a, a level up like, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes into this dungeon. And then after that, it's just kind of like, why even bother, you know? Yeah. Both with fighting enemies and getting XP bags. It's like, I don't know, like, I'm not going to spend time doing this because there's just, there is no point. There's absolutely no point to doing it. So um, that's a bit of a downer, honestly. Like, I wish that there was some incentive for getting XP bags outside of just getting XP. Like, I wish they gave you health back or something in addition to that, because that kind of would have made a lot of difference, you know? Yeah. Similar to what you were saying with, like, magic jars and everything. But um, I, I like this dungeon as well. It is not quite as large as the Palace on the Sea. It does not have quite as many branching paths as that one. Um, but what it does have is a, is a pretty condensed and fun dungeon experience. Um, there's definitely a... There's a thing going on here in which you have to uh, you have to be willing and ready to use several of your different magic spells. Mm -hmm. um, reflect is required here if you want to beat any of these wizard robes. The fairy spell is required in several parts. There's actually a really interesting room 
uh, in which you have to use the fairy spell mid fall. To, yeah, to, yeah. Well, well, uh, we'll get to that in a second. But there's an interesting room where you have to use the fairy spell to like get all the way across the room. And there's like some there's like drips. There's poison drips coming down from the ceiling and there's bubbles bouncing around and like and you kind of have to avoid all of those. Mm-hmm. And and to me, that kind of like led me to thinking about a version of this game where dungeons after you get the fairy spell just have a lot of these sorts of chambers, you know, um, because that actually sounds kind of interesting, right? Like you have no offensive capability and it just becomes a game of like getting good at avoiding enemies uh, in order to get from like one side of a room to the other. Cause you have a lava pit at the bottom. So you have to be a fairy to traverse it. And uh, and I don't know, I like I found this room to be kind of like a, a welcome, uh, a welcome change from the established formula. Um, I, I realize that's a completely different kind of game <laughs> than we're talking about right now, but they did it once. So why not do it more? Uh, yeah, I also I know that they don't call them anti fairies in this game. I think they don't become anti fairies until uh, Link's Awakening. Bubbles. Yeah, they're called bubbles, but. They, they look the sprite is pretty similar to anti fairies in Link's Awakening. So it was a fun little headcanon for me to like be in fairy mode, avoiding poison and avoiding anti fairies. Like I thought that was really fun. Yeah. Um. So just a cool little piece of thing that ha- I had going on in my brain during that section. And which I also did really think was cool and clever. And it was a good use of a spell that we've used like exactly one other time in the game. Mm. Um, you use it at least twice in this dungeon. Um, I think three times actually. And yeah, I thought it was really good and a good, um, a, a good way to, to use some, to use that spell. I do wish that it didn't cost you 40 magic because there was a point specifically that last point when you fall down and you have to use the the fairy spell in mid fall to get to the boss room um, where I had to go do a lot of magic grinding because I was running low on magic. This is a very magic heavy dungeon. So that was, I think that I would have liked to see the fairy spell get a little bit more of a cost reduction by leveling up magic than it got. Um, Both fairy and life stay at like very close to the base value even um even when you have full eight magic um like 50 for life and 40 for fairy so yeah um i I think that that was that was a minor point of frustration kind of going back to that famine economy we talked about with max last week is um sitting and grinding bubbles or uh blue chews for uh you know 10 to 20 minutes just to get enough magic power to use the fairy spell was not my favorite thing in the world cody where are you at with transforming into a fairy Oh, I love it. Um, you know, it's a, it's a great spell. Um, the spells are actually a really interesting thing that you don't see. It. They sort of didn't continue over into other Zelda games um, to a large extent, but there's some really interesting stuff in there. Like the fairies, I've been using the fairy spell throughout um, because I don't, I don't know if you know this, but a little... A little preview to part seven of the Sacred Realms rundown, Cody's tips and tricks. But um, (laughs) using a fairy lets you skip past locked doors um, because you can go through the keyhole. And so whenever I ran into a locked door and I was like, I'm too lazy to go get the key, I transformed into a fairy and went through. So 
uh, I've been I've been getting a lot of use out of it in my new game plus run where I had fairy from the get go. Gotcha. But of course, in this dungeon, I mean, I I guess you had no reason to go get the magic key if that's the case. But uh, oh well, it's still useful to get the magic key because it still continues to cost like forty magic to sure. Yeah, use the fairy, but uh, and that's so yeah, and that's but, and I just need to say real quick that's something we did not mention in the uh, in part two, which is that one of the things that you can actually find once you get the spell spell in New Casuto Town is if you go to the very 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 last uh, frame in New Casuto Town, there's like a big wall that you can't get past, and if you use the spell spell in there, then it it summons a vault from the ground and you can go underground, and there is a magic key in there. And it functions the exact same way as the magic key does in the Legend of Zelda, uh, in that it it uh, no it, you are no longer required to pick up keys in a dungeon. You can now unlock any door just by default, and uh, it it is required for the beating of this dungeon. Um, you cannot beat Three Eye Rock Palace without it. I'm assuming that means that uh, uh, the next dungeon, the the um, the Great Palace is also similar, assuming it has key doors. Um, one thing I was a little confused about is that you still collect, like, there's still keys in here. Yeah, that didn't make any sense to me either. And I'm not entirely sure why that is. Well, because it's an optional thing to go and, it's an optional bonus to go and find the magic key. So I guess is the implication that it, the dungeon gives you just enough keys to, like, get to the boss or something, but not enough to get the cross? Um, I mean, I'm not sure about the keys, but I I would have suspected that there would be enough keys to to get through um, without the magical key. But I'm not entirely sure. It might maybe it's not optional, but um, but I I mean, I got the magical key, so I'm not, in, and I skipped through key doors anyway. Right. Um, so I'm not sure, but um, with with the different variety of things, you can't actually get. You can't get stuck in the game. You can't get hard locked out by um, using the wrong keys. Yeah. Uh, the uh, treasure that we have in this dungeon is, of course, just a cross. Uh, a little bit of a little bit of religious iconography in this game that, as we've mentioned before, starts getting phased out as you go further into this series. But uh, oh yeah, well, this is the last. This is the the last game in which. They don't have their internal religious stuff sorted out yet because a link to the past, or uh, as it's known in Japan, Triforce of the Gods, was all about the origin story. And but before that, it was just sort of vaguely medieval. So Zelda one and two, you you continue to see um, some just like Christian iconography and stuff on shields and all that sort of thing throughout before they came to a consensus on um, here's our, you know, here's our, here's our Triforce and here's, you know, the three goddesses and all of this mm-hmm. kind of thing. With a, with an occasional unfortunate sidetrack into some uh, <laughs> Nazism, <laughs> some, some, in, some unfortunate Islamic uh, appropriation in Ocarina of Time, which was oh, promptly yeah. removed in the remaster. So we approve, we uh, stand that decision. Well, some of it was removed. I mean, there's still a pretty heavy sort of Islamic sort of, I don't know, the 
you know, the, the Gerudo people are pretty clearly sort of, you know, Arab people and there's, a, you know, all of the blocks and all of that kind of thing have some Muslim-looking symbols on them and um, all that kind of thing. So, you know, and Ganondorf may be questionable as the sort of, you know, I don't know, green-skinned Muslim guy who's come to threaten the kingdom. You know, there's all sorts of things you can get into there with the politics of all of that. But um, but they sort of did it once and then I think realised um, that they should stay away from it. <laughs> we, should, um, we should probably come up with something bespoke that is unoffensive to most people. Yeah. Um, you know, because I think a lot of the time there's, you see art where it's like, here's some religious symbolism and they just think it's fun or cool and it's like, you know, like Evangelion is sort of famous as an anime for all sorts of random Christian symbolism that doesn't mean anything. It's just there because the creator thought it was, it looked cool. Um, but if you try to fit it into the lore of the Zelda series and all that kind of thing, you get, it's very, uh, very odd. You just sort of have to take it as a retcon yeah. basically. Yeah. And of course we'll get into the exact functionality of what the cross does next week, but uh, that is our main item of this dungeon. Let's go ahead and talk about the boss that we fight in this dungeon, which is a dragon. Is it Lavagia? I don't know. <clears throat> it is not. It's Barba who I have affectionately called Barbara. Barbara the dragon <laughs> is our boss of this dungeon. <laughs> Barbara fires a lethal stream of fireballs. Uh, however, uh, we are able to use our handy up thrust jump attack to uh, do some sword hits to Barbara's head. And after a fair number of those, she goes down. Um, I, in general, found this boss way less uh, fun and challenging than Guma. Um, there's just a lot less, uh, there's a lot less trial and error and a lot less, uh, kind of skill of movement that is required to, to kind of find victory here. Um, of course we do have a purpose for the jump thrust, which is really nice. But, uh, other than that, I don't know, it's, it's just not all that difficult, especially if you go to the trouble of popping the shield spell before you go into this boss fight. And if you have a good amount of health. Because yes, uh, the the string of fireballs is pretty uh, it's pretty potent. It takes a good chunk of your health away, but it's enough to where you can totally tank it if you have the shield spell active. Um, and then as long as you're just a little bit evasive, then you're you're able to kill the boss before too much time has gone by. Uh, Cody, I mean, is that a pretty fair assessment? Where are you at with Barbara the Dragon? Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's one that you sort of start to get the the sense of satisfaction of a Zelda boss from more than, you know, because I mentioned the last boss does have patterns, but it's still more in the realm of sort of just uh, throwing out an attack and you dodging it. Whereas this, there's sort of like a, a very, like, methodical way of dealing with the boss where you're like, all right, so if I stand here, the boss will start to cast the fireball and then I move out of the way and then I can go in and attack. Um, and, you know, I started to get, I guess, some of the some of the enjoyment that I get from later Zelda bosses where it's like, all right, I figured out the attack patterns and now let's go. Um, and, yeah, it is, I think this is pretty directly similar to 
Volvagia from from Ocarina um, as bosses go. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I actually had not considered the angle of like, uh, you know, the ways in which this is similar to later Zelda bosses where just like kind of figuring out the correct place to stand and the and the correct way to tackle it is the is the way forward into victory. Um, but yeah, I mean, other than that, I, I still stand by my earlier statement, which is that I just had less fun overall with this boss than I did with Guma. Um, Guma was far more difficult, I think, but uh, the difficulty was accompanied by an element of, of predictability of like movement and stuff that made that really fun. And, and for this, it was really just making sure that uh, – Making sure that you've got your shield spell up and that you're just not taking too many of those fireball hits. It, it was not quite as fun for me. So I, I I think I actually enjoyed Barbara more than Guma. I thought Guma was kind of bland just in the fact that he was so unidimensional. Um, Barbara going in and out of the lava pits was kind of neat. Um, I actually, <laughs> uh, embarrassingly, didn't use the jump th- uh, the jump thrust to, to damage Barbara. I activated shield and jump spell and did more of the jump and hit her in the head. And I actually also uh, did a cool thing where I got a triple down thrust hit on her one time, which was kind of cool. <laughs> I was bounced on top of her head for a while. Um, and promptly fell into the adjacent lava pit, which was kind of embarrassing. Well, that is the danger. <laughs> that is the danger there. But um, I, I enjoyed Barbara. I didn't find her fire spells to be too, or her uh, her fire breath to be too much of a pain for me. Uh, mostly because jump spell, like the time that you're in the air for the jump spell is longer than the time that it takes for her to uh, throw all that fire and for it to dissipate. So I didn't take hardly any damage other than accidentally falling into a lava pit. Um, and I jumped into her one time, which hurt me, but, um, I don't know. I enjoyed it just on the basis of, um, it was, it was far more, it was very different from any other boss we fought so far because it wasn't just a person, uh, a vaguely humanoid shape in a room that was attacking you. It was a monster and it was doing things that other enemies have not done in this game. Um, it was going in and she was going in and out of, uh, you know, the lava. And I, I don't know. I, I disagree. I think that Barbara was more fun than Guma. For well, me. you, as always, are entitled to your wrong opinion. Uh, Lyndon, I think you're the one with the wrong opinion this time around. We'll have to get a, a, a feel for who thought Barbara was more fun than uh, Guma, because I think I might be in the majority here. Well, I think that uh, that tiebreaker should go to the third person on this episode. Cody, did you enjoy Barbara or Guma more? Uh, I enjoyed Barbara more. Let's go. Damn it. How does it feel to be wrong, Lyndon? Well, you know, I uh, I stand by my words. Um I I've spent my entire life as a tragically misunderstood soul. Oh, is that right? Is that why you're an artist? Oh my gosh. Now we're going to get into some psychology session here. I'm heavily, I think we should, I'm heavily persecuted. We should probably uh, skip that part of the podcast. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Two, two out of three contributing members of this show say that I'm wrong. So take that for what you will. Um, I guess real quick before we move on from part two, 
One last question for both of y'all. Which dungeon did you enjoy more? Did you, uh, so Cody, we'll start with you first. Did you enjoy Palace on the Sea or Three Eye Rock Palace more? Um, I think the second dungeon had started to have something. I sort of enjoyed, I mean, part of why I enjoyed the boss um, probably more is that I started to see the patterns of the Zelda series of recognizable things of like mini boss rooms where the music changes and you get locked in the room and, you know, you're fighting a familiar mini boss. Um, and then, you know, coming in and fighting Volvalgia, um, who's got something more than just a guy with an attack pattern. Um, so in that sense, I think, you know, there were some interesting early early signals of Zelda stuff that was that were in the, the second dungeon. Well, and that's actually an important point that we have not brought up so far, which is that uh, this second dungeon, Three-Eye Rock Palace, it does actually feature mini-boss battles, which is something that hasn't happened before now. Uh, there are two rooms in this dungeon where you actually fight... Um, Robo-Knight? <laughs> yeah, Robo-Knight. What's his actual name? I know it's not I, I Chupacabra, but that's like... It's some it's something that sounds kind of like that. Uh, Zelda Dungeon just calls him uh, Iron Knuckle. No, no, he's got a name. Yeah, but I don't remember what it is. Hold on. It's uh, hold on. Which boss? Joe the Iron Knuckle. <laughs> Joe. <laughs> uh, he was a Maze Palace boss, right? Yeah. Or was he Island Palace? Yeah, no, he was Island Palace. Maze Palace was giant wizrobe. He is Rebonac. Rebonac, definitely not Chupacabra. Um, yeah, so <laughs> not even close. Not even close. He doesn't eat goats, Linden. He does not. So yeah, we've got two mini boss fights with Rebonac and. Uh, actually, these two mini boss fights I actually thought were pretty fun. I like how they have two phases. For one thing, you've got to dismount Rebenak, and then you've got to beat him on his own. At, at which point, he's just a regular blue iron knuckle, but in a very tall room with no obstacles. And once again, going back to the point that I made earlier about how blue iron knuckles are way more fun to fight when you have uh, no <laughs> obstacles of any kind that are keeping you from jumping or getting on top of him or whatever. So anyway, yeah, that, that is definitely important to mention that Three-Eyed Rock Palace does have many bosses. There you go. It has now been stated for the record. Matt, same question to you. Which of these two dungeons did you enjoy more? Uh, definitely the second one. Um, I think for most of the points that I, that we've talked about, um, the unique use of a lot of different spells, um, the unique boss, the, um, the, the not needing to explore every single nook and cranny was kind of nice. Um, but at the same time is also a bit of a detractor in the fact that I didn't feel incentivized to do exploring. Um, so kind of a double edged sword there while you kick the table out of anger. Sorry. Goodness. Why are you sorry. so angry? Sorry. Lyndon? Sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it was good. Um, the I would say that the the reuse of Rebonac twice in the dungeon as both of the mini bosses was kind of disappointing. I wish we had gotten Rebonac once and then, you know, maybe another one a different time. Like maybe we retread Horsehead here or something. Um but with like, I don't know, upgraded armor or a different weapon. I don't know. Just like I, I think using the same mini boss twice was kind of lazy. Yeah. So 
So I, I also like the second dungeon more overall, even though I like the boss in the first one more. I think the second dungeon has a, um, you know, it's a little briefer, um, still, you know, still requires exploration. And uh, more to the point is kind of what you just brought up, Matt, which is that I appreciate having to kind of rotate my use of spells to defeat a lot of the enemies that are in here. Um, I think that that's really nice. And I, I like that this game is forcing me to call upon things that are not the life regen spell, you know? Yeah. Um, that That's really cool. Uh, also, you know, I do really enjoy, we haven't mentioned it before, but the, you know, it, the only way that you can get to the boss room in the second dungeon is to fall through a pit. And then like halfway through your fall, activate the fairy spell and like float into the uh the corridor that leads to the boss room so that was kind of fun uh that was definitely something that required like a little trial and error of like oh i I think the boss is over here but i don't know how to get there oh yeah i have a spell that allows me to fly so yeah uh it gets a few extra points where that is concerned ingenuity yes indeed all right let's get into the lightning round that we've been doing the last few weeks in which we do parts four five and six as quickly as we possibly can because there's just not that much to talk about in any of these part four is of course bloopy trails where we talk about interesting things that distracted our attention i'll go first basically the only thing i can possibly think of that counts here is that i collected uh, I collected the heart container on the ocean above the palace. I collected another heart container off the coast down by Three-Eyed Rock Palace. And I guess if you count just grinding the hell out of enemies in the first palace for XP, then I guess that's a bloopy trail too. But really not much to say here. Matt, how about you? So I did all of those things. I also found another Link doll, another creepy Link doll in the swamp. Uh, I actually also visited the old Casudo town. Yep. Uh, before I had the cross and got hit by some invisible enemies and said, nope, and peaced out of there. Once I realized that it was a deserted town that was not going to give me any health and instead take a lot of health away. So I peaced out of there real fast. Um, I will immediately be revisiting that so I can, uh, get the thunder spell, which apparently is there. Um, doo, 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 doo. yeah, that was pretty much it. Um, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was decent. Cody, you got any, uh, bloopy trail material for us? Um, not really. I mean, part of the thing about doing a new game plus is that you don't need point bags and you don't need the quests from each town to go and get your spell. And so it's sort of just like, mainlining your way through it um you know aside from the heart containers and stuff but yeah i have enjoyed when i got those cool well then in that case let's go ahead and get into part five which is z targeting where we lock on to fascinating characters or enemies that we happen to cross i will once again go first i so my z targeting pick for this week is going to be the old man in old casudo town who uh, if you are brave enough to kind of like charge forward and go into the first home that has an open door you find an old man who's in there who says this town is dead go somewhere else and uh you know, I don't know what that old man's name is, but I appreciate him sticking to his guns. You know, he's uh, you know, this home is probably paid off. 
He's put a lot of <laughs> it's it's uh it's property value sure is not going up, but you it's, know, it's at least it's a zero sum game for him. Yeah, it's definitely not. But like, I mean, he's you know, he's just gotta he's gotta stick around and try to protect his investment as much as he possibly can. So uh yeah, the the old man who's chilling out in old Casudo town never leaves the home because there's invisible enemies everywhere. Um so you know, for all those reasons I admire his uh his bravery, really. It's uh, got a lot of got a lot of cojones. Uh, how about you, Matt? Who's your Z targeting pick for this week? Good pick, Lyndon. Um, mine is gonna actually be the old lady in New Katsuo Town. Who, uh, when you talk to her, she just says, "You look like you're worthy of some help. Come follow me," and just like for no reason whatsoever, whatsoever, other than Link, I guess, having an honest face. Uh, decides to to lend some help, which uh, I appreciate and is rare. You in, know what? In we are game. worthy. I would say so. I would say we're worthy of some occasional help. Cody, how are you feeling about Z-targeting? Well, so my character um, for this week is a character that who hasn't been seen but whose existence has been implied. Um and I'm, of course, talking about the one who imbued our new crucifix with power, God's only begotten son, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate Z-targeting pick thus far, Jesus himself. <laughs> oh, man. Good pick, so Cody. was crucified, uh, if there's a crucifix going around, that, that scares ghosts, so... You know, it gives a lot of implications that we they never dig into. I think that's a great pick. Jesus is always the answer. That's what what we learned in Bible class. Jesus is never necessarily the wrong answer. There you go, Cody. I I never expected I never expected uh, the man himself, JC, to to come up on the the sacred realms. The Zelda retrospective podcast. There we go. It's a whole new type of sacred realms now. (laughs) Oh boy. Cool. All right. Cody gets maximum points for invoking the name of Christ. Uh, Let's get into part six, which is our final thoughts in which we let Matt uh, sum up this section of the game in as succinct a way as he can possibly do. Oh, boy. I'm actually not prepared for this one, Uh, which is weird. Uh, Give me one second to gather my thoughts. So as we approach the end of the uh, main section of the game where we are tackling uh, the palaces and placing the crystals, we find ourselves uh, kicking and screaming our way to the uh, skill gap curve uh, and seeing some real enjoyment out of getting there. And uh, while we are encountering enemies that are no less dangerous than before, uh, our increasing power and skill at uh, combating these enemies gives this game kind of a whole new life and has turned it into a unilaterally torturous experience into one that has been rewarding in a lot of ways to see our skill triumph over uh, the difficulty of the enemies Uh, we have two pretty fantastic dungeons uh, especially as far as these older zelda games go um, both very sprawling and a lot to explore and a lot to do 
um, that were uh, overall enjoyable, especially the second dungeon, which uh, has us using our entire arsenal of uh, significant magical abilities to traverse, um, including some new unique encounters and uh, just an overall really good time. Uh, Two good bosses overall. um, Goomba or whatever, Gooma being uh, kind of you know, brute forcey as uh, his sprite would suggest with a very large hulking figure with a giant mace. And then uh, our good friend Barbara diving in and out of lava. So I I think we can say that this section of the game has put us on track to tackle the final dungeon in a, uh, in a better headspace than we've been throughout most of the game. I would say notably, we killed both of these good friends. We did. We did kill them both. They, they, they deserved death as decreed by the King of Hyrule who made us kill them to prove our worth. So um, if you want to blame anyone, blame the king of Hyrule. Um, And then, of course, an honorable mention to our good friend JC for giving us the uh, wonderful cross to uh, allow us to see uh, hidden enemies. So all in all, uh, a good section of the game that is setting us up for success as we approach the final dungeon and then the rank and recap. Well, that brings us to the point in the Sacred Realms rundown at which we surrender ourselves to the... uh, to the force of nature that is Cody Davies, who just adds sections of this uh, segment of the podcast willy-nilly. Cody, do your worst. All right. Well, welcome to part seven of the Sacred Realms Rundown, Cody's Tips and Tricks. Um, I already mentioned using a fairy to skip past the keys, um, and that's one to think about. Um, Another thing is I heard on the last podcast you mentioned that you haven't really found a use for the upward thrust, thrust attack yet. Um, but I'll just say that I found it quite useful going through the game, having it the whole time, because there's a lot of enemies, you know, flying fish and bats and spiders and things that come at you, come at you from above. Um, and if you combine it with jump, especially, um, the, you know, lots of flying eyes and things that, um, that you can, you can get a good use out of the upward thrust for. So don't forget about that one. Um. So part eight, Australia facts. Always a classic. Koalas koalas sleep for up to 22 hours each day. That's my Australia fact for you this time. And and in this moment, we are all jealous of the koalas. Always. So part nine is, of course, called Matt, do you intentionally mispronounce a character's name in each game? (laughs) Which I was going to skip, but... At least twice in this episode, Casudo Town has been mangled uh, by Matt, who's called it like Costu, and I don't even know what else. But uh, yeah, it's Casudo Town. So just uh, yeah, that was that was more or less intentional this time around. Yeah, look, you can, okay, look, we yeah. have to give the Discord channel something to talk about in the phonetics section. Otherwise, there's no point to having it. Hmm. So yeah, the. Uh, it's it's one of the one of the interesting towns in that it's or I, I think it might be the only town that's not a sage or a character or I should say a character in Ocarina of Time. Yeah, because Mido is not a sage, but um, he has a Mido's character. Mido's not yes. a sage, but is a character. Yeah. So, uh, but it is the hidden town of Kasudo, so it may be the hidden sage. Maybe you just never saw them. It's that secret. It's that secret eighth sage and breath or in uh, Ocarina of Time that we just never. Nobody's nobody to this day has discovered. So there you go. 
Yeah. Um, so we'll skip part 10 and 11 for now and go on to part 12, which is called, <laughs> Well, the Water Dragon in Skyward Sword doesn't know what she's doing. I just wanted to keep that on. <laughs> it's a classic for a reason. Yeah. Yeah, look, and... You'll be you'll be discovering a bit more of the antics of gods who love to flood uh, Hyrule in your upcoming game. So uh, it's a popular technique uh, amongst these these gods for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we'll move on to part thirteen, which is a new part um, which I'm calling. By the way, I'm happy to guest on everyone's Zelda podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Which Joshua put a call out for for Zelda podcasts that, you know, wanted to have him on, and he, and he got like four Zelda podcasts in a week. So I, I just figured I should mention that, look, if you're running a Zelda podcast and you need, you know, the one and only Cody to be on your podcast, and, you know, send me a message. And if, if it's during a time zone that I can make, uh, then I'll probably be happy to happy to be there. So I'll I'll co-sign uh, that message. Uh, Cody Cody gives good pod, and uh, I will I will say that our time zone is basically exactly opposite of his, and he manages to show up on our show. So uh, I, I'm struggling to think of a time zone that he would have a difficult time showing up for. But uh, yeah. Yeah, um, part 14 is called Visit Zeldapedia.wiki. I don't know if you've been following along with this, Matt and Lindy. Uh, I have not. I am, I am peripherally aware of, of what has kind of happened over the last week, but uh, please summarize for our listeners. Uh, so basically, Zelda Wiki was originally, uh, Zelda Universe was the, you know, founded it. Um, but then it was sold uh, about five or six years ago to uh, Gamepedia, which was then bought by uh, bought by Fandom slash Wikia um, in a series of about four different corporate buyouts, and so it ended up on Fandom, um, which a lot of the community weren't happy with because it is as a website. UI and all this kind of thing with ads popping up everywhere and auto-playing videos and, um, you know, big bars appearing on the screen um, and, you know, just other stuff to do with just sort of editorial independence and that kind of thing. Um, A lot of people weren't that happy with just being part of the big big corporate machine of fandom. Um, And so the community has split, um, has forked, as they call it in wikiing, Wiki terms, meaning that all of the content is still there, but they've launched a, their own independently hosted website, which is currently identical in content to the Fandom Zelda Wiki, but will be different as it gets edited over, you know, this next six months as as Tears of the Kingdom comes out and everything. So instead of instead of visiting the Fandom Wiki, um, if you want to visit uh, our new uh, independent version of it. Um, the current URL for that is zeldapedia.wiki. 
Well, that's plenty easy to remember. And of course, uh, we 100% support the hard work of all the people that we actually personally know who are who are putting time and effort into this project. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I think we can all get behind um, a resource uh, of collected knowledge for this thing that we love that does not involve shameless uh, shameless corporate marketing and other uh, other shady tactics. So, yeah, definitely, uh, definitely a happy ending to that story, and uh, definitely good to know that um, the responsibility behind that is back in the hands of people who are, uh, you know, actually real people and not <laughs> faceless and, corporate overlords <laughs> and invested in our community. Absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah, so so yeah, Zelda Universe is basically partnered with Zelda Wiki. We have a, a big uh you know, a link to it on our front page and everything and use it, you know, as our, our wiki. So having the independent again um will be will be really valuable. So uh part fifteen is called Question of the Day. Um, which is a question that I will pose to you to finish off this episode. Um so Part of the this today's question, part of the problem with Zelda 2 is just the system limitations, but part of it is just limitations on the thinking around games at the time. You know, like the thinking in arcade terms and that kind of thing. If if there if you could make it so that the developers of Zelda 2 could play A Link to the Past and Super Metroid and then be given another year to work on Zelda 2. What would be the change? What would be the one big change that you would like to see based on their are having a chance to view the new, um, you know, the world of five years later? So before I answer this question, Matt, I know that you have not played Super Metroid. However, for the purposes of the discussion, uh, your experience with Metroid Dread will suffice. Fair enough. Cool. I'll still let you go first. Cool. Uh, I would say... Man, you know, I I think that I think the biggest thing to me is still what the developers of Link to the Past were able to do with the overworld, Um, because I I, I think obviously I've mentioned before now how I'm, I'm vastly dissatisfied with the solution to overworld gameplay in Zelda 2. And the thing is that uh the way that it was handled in Zelda one, obviously that was the first time that had really ever been done. And it was, it was far from being considered a staple of the series. And I understand why the developers of this game wanted to shoot for just a little bit more scale. Right. I think they felt like the overworld they had to work with in Zelda one was, was pretty limited. Um, and they, they wanted to represent a wider geographical area. And I think that if they were able to go play A Link to the Past and then come back and work on this game later, they would see that it's actually possible. Like, like yes, even though when you adjust for scale, this overworld is much larger than Zelda 1 and even Link to the Past. I think they would see just how much character you can add um, when whenever the overworld is at the same scale as like all your combat situations and whatnot. Uh, and I think it would have been done much differently. The other thing that I would say is that I, I, I think if they were able to play a link to the past before this game, then um, 
there definitely would have been some other offensive items added to your arsenal in some way. Um, I think that's such a big part of a link to the past and it's really sort of missing from this game. Spells are cool. It is not quite the same. And I think that that would have been taken, taken account of. Um, I think if they had been able to play super Metroid, then I think that spells would have been used to be able to traverse dungeons um, a little bit more so than they are now. Spells mm-hmm. spells currently exist mostly to regen your health or to give you a certain combat advantage. Um, jump is the closest to what I'm talking about right now, but that's even not used all that often. But I, I think that uh, if they had been able to play Super Metroid before developing this game, then there would be sections where going into a dungeon let's say halfway through the dungeon you wouldn't be able to traverse any farther if you didn't have reflect or fireballs or whatever um i think that would probably be the biggest takeaway from uh super metroid and from just the metroid series uh in general um yeah i I think off the top of my head that that's what i've got on that matt where are you at so i think for me outside of the overworld that you covered um it would be the kind of reduction of the famine economy that we've been so begrudging um, the last few episodes because like not even Metroid has a famine economy like this, like enemies drop frequently um, ammunition or health or um, a combination of, and it's, it's normally in amounts that is not like completely refunding what you could lose in, in a situation, but gives you enough to keep going until you can farm some other, um, lesser ads to to do that. I think that farming magic um, from blue chews is about as close as you get to mitigating famine economy. But even that is few and far between from what is dropped versus and what is gained. So I think, yeah, for me, um, outside of the the overworld changes, Lyndon said, I, I think the reduction of the reliance on famine economy for um, artificial difficulty. Cool. Uh, what what would be your answer to that question, Cody? Well, I think for me, um, just the the inclusion of more signposting and like this is talking about you know sprites that are slightly different than than the regular sprite. You know things like when there's a bombable wall, you know that you can bomb the wall because there's a crack there. When there's you know just that kind of signposting, I think, has continued to improve into into later games. And to some degree, there's only so much you can do with the NES, but I think it's still entirely possible within the realm of the NES if you're not running, you know, completely out of space to have a couple of variations of, like, here's a variation of the forest, except it's, you know, it's got something different about it. It's got a little... You know, it shimmers or it's uh, it's a slightly different color or whatever that that gives a bit more of things that you can see from the game and not just see from the associated map that comes with the strategy guide. Um, and of course, a map is nice um, in general, like dungeon maps and that kind of thing. That yeah, and that's for some fair. Reason and, and in yeah. fairness, uh, Link to the Past and Super Metroid both, uh, I think, were the first games in their respective series to employ maps 
uh, as kind of like a like I know Zelda one had dungeon maps, but, you know, Link to the Past had an overworld map. Super Metroid certainly has got a much better wayfinding situation than NES Metroid did. So um, I think that's a really good call out, Cody. I I think that would have made a, a big difference and made a big impression on the designers if they had seen those implemented. Yeah, so those are my 15 parts of the Sacred Realms rundown for now. So, um, yeah, you can wrap it up now if you like. Well, you know, we have one more thing to do, which is to ask you, where can people follow you if they wish to do so? Well, if they want to see my Zelda stuff, they can visit zeldauniverse.net and find all the social media links from there. We're on everything. We're on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Twitch, um, you know, Instagram. Uh, we've even got a TikTok now, so to keep up with the kids these days. So, you know, <laughs> it's, it's all there. Um, and if you want to follow me personally, I'm on Magicody on Twitter. So that's M-A-G-I-C-O-D-Y. And you can DM me if you want me to appear on your Zelda podcast. There you go. And of course, on our own Zelda podcast, we're coming up very soon to a game which I've been led to believe you uh, personally enjoy quite a lot. Which would be Wind Waker. Ah, yes. The Wind Waker. I think it is maybe second on my list of Zelda games of all time. Oh, wow. So safe... Uh, Oh, sorry. Yeah. Look, it's either second or third. I sort of have Majora's Mask or Wind Waker in that in that spot, depending on how I feel at the time. Um, but um, I think at the moment I might put it second behind Breath of the Wild. So safe to say we can expect you back on season seven of Sacred Realms Pod to discuss uh, that beautiful game during Matt's first ever playthrough of it. Yeah, look, I, I think it will be an interesting one to look forward to, um, especially if you've never played it before. Um, just sort of with all the context from the games before and after, I think it would be quite interesting to go back to The Wind Waker. Couldn't agree more. Well, until we get around to that point, Cody, I just want to say thank you. It's always a pleasure having you on. Your perspective is really wonderful. And uh, yeah, I think you're you're adding to the to the growing tapestry of very interesting conversation that we're having around this game specifically. Uh, we appreciate your perspective very much. Yeah, well, look, I mean, it seems like this is the game in which you have two hour recordings of uh, of lots of stuff to say. Um, so it's a, apparently a very, very uh, interesting topic, Zelda 2. Yeah, we literally, like we've been trying and I just, look, I, I just don't think we can make these any briefer for this game. Like it it just is what it is. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, we, we all we all have a lot to say and it's all it's all pretty interesting. So uh, these are the good problems to have. Regardless, Cody, I, I hope that you, uh, you know, I hope that you're well. And uh, again, we wish you the best of luck in your upcoming election if we don't talk to you before then. All right. See you around. Absolutely. Well, I think that that uh, means that it's about time to get out of here, Matt. It's not quite midnight yet, but we're getting real damn close. It is uh, knocking on the door. Yep, absolutely. 
Well, with all that said, if you enjoyed today's show and you would like a little extra Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod and become a patron. If you've got no rupees, it's not a problem. Five-star Apple Podcast reviews are a great free way to support us. More reviews means that more people see our show. That makes us very happy, Hylians. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sacred Realms Pod for updates on the podcast and for behind-the-scenes action. Sacred Realms will be back next Wednesday with our thoughts on the finale of The Adventure of Link. We'd love for you to play along with us and to share your thoughts on our social channels. The Adventure of Link can be played in a variety of places. It can be played on an original NES. It can be played on a Nintendo NES Mini. It can be played via a variety of eShops, or it can be played on the Nintendo Switch NES online service, which is the version that Matt and I are playing. But in the meantime, may your hearts be full, may your arrows never miss. We'll catch y'all next week. Sacred Realms is an independent podcast production, which is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Lyndon Willoughby. Our music comes from Zelda and Chill by Mikkel and is graciously provided to us by Mikkel and Game Chops Records. Zelda and Chill is available to stream on Spotify or to purchase directly from GameChops.com. Finally, our thanks go to Nintendo for creating such exceptional and innovative experiences.